0: Good morning, ladies. Oh, there we are. Or friends, I should say. We're not all ladies. Hi. (laughs) It's lovely to be with you this morning. Um, Our fearless rector is out of town, and so he's asked me to fill in in his stead. My understanding is we're talking about Acts 4 today, so I hope that's what y'all are prepared for. Yes, no, whatever. We could talk about anything, huh, and y'all would be okay. Okay. Okay, let's go. I'm the Reverend Mary Lessman, if you haven't met me before. Most of you I've met, um... And I am Associate for Spiritual Growth here at St. Michael and All Angels, which I love, love, love. And so I'm happy to be with you today to talk about Acts. All right, let's start with a little bit of a recap. Um, To recap, Pentecost has happened, Peter has preached, 3,000 folks are baptized, that is not too shabby. New believers are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, the apostles are doing signs and wonders, Peter that now heals this lame man at the temple. This is what happened in Acts 3. And the folks who see it ask Peter, hey, what's going on? How are you able to do that? And just like on Pentecost, uh, Peter just stands up and starts preaching the good news, right? Telling them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets and it's in the name of Jesus that they're able to call forth this kind of healing. And that's kind of where we pick it up now this morning, starting in um, chapter 4. So I'm going to read verses uh, 5 to 12 because we're going to talk a little about that. This is after this healing and after Peter has preached his message. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all who were of the priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So I want to say, notice how similar this situation is to Jesus' trial. All of the same heavy hitters that question Jesus are now pulling Peter and John in and saying, Hey, what's going on? What are you all doing here, right? Um, And Peter, true to his nature, wants to make sure everyone is clear about his answer. There is no dancing around it. He says, that lame man was healed by the power of Jesus, who is God's Messiah, and that is the only name under God through whom we are saved. So, I want to bring up, wouldn't you think that if healing was going on, the leaders of the temple would be happy? I mean, wouldn't that be a good thing, that people are being healed? Well, not if you're under the old power system, right? The old way of being in relationship with God. And this healing is happening under the new way of being in relationship with God, right? So the Jewish authorities are feeling the um, the, the sting to their power, and they want to push back. They want to discredit this movement. They don't want to praise it. They've had years of unfettered power at the temple. And, and so they have know that they have power not only at the temple now, that they've been doing for years, but just like we see today, when you've got power in one arena, it starts helping you have power in others. So these guys had economic and social power as well that had grown out of the role that they had at the temple. And so, as we're kind of familiar in our current setting, those who've had power never wanna give it up willingly. They are vested in maintaining their power. And so that's what's going on here. And why do these leaders disprove of the resurrection? The resurrection is the understanding that God is going to put all things right once and for all. So if God is going to show up and set things right, that kind of means that the current situation might not be right, right? And if it changes, chances are the folks who are in power now under the current system are not going to be in power when God comes in and changes everything. So now we get to another thing that we can all relate to, and that's the fear of change. Nobody wants change because they, can't, they don't know for sure what's on the other side. What we have right now might not be great, but it's comfortable, and we know it, right? And it's kind of scary to think about what would be on the other side. So that's part of what's going on here, too. Not only that, but those who believe in the resurrection are more ready to cause trouble for the present system. Because, hey, you know, if they protest or if they run for office or if they support a cause for change in the world, they're only helping God advance the agenda that he will consummate sometime down the road when he makes everything right, right? And if pursuing what they believe God wants them to do results in their death, well, God will raise them for the dead at the end anyway. So either way, it's a win-win. People who believe in the resurrection are kind of empowered to start living in ways that change the status quo because they're not as vested in it being what it is today. They're vested in what God's vision is for down the road, right? And that gives them courage to kind of do some of that stuff. So what really ticked off the authorities here is that Peter is preaching resurrection of the dead— And he's announcing that this resurrection was through Jesus. Peter is saying not only has Jesus been raised, but he's initiated the general resurrection, whereby all believers will be resurrected. So this is brand new information. This is new stuff. And at the end of this passage, we have um, Peter saying... There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And when I read this, I thought a little about how, you know, here he's got a very strong statement. There's no other name through which we're saved. And, you know, we have that passage in John that, um, that is beautiful and it's often read actually at funerals. It says, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? And these verses in the past have kind of been seen as exclusionary. And that we're saying that you have to, basically in in the jargon of some strains of Christianity, you have to have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? And that that's a a deal breaker. And and so I want to push back a little, you know, on that for a moment. I I believe that through the redemptive work of Jesus, we've all been given access to God in a new way. And that Jesus' redemptive work isn't dependent on whether... um, people know about it or where they actually believe it, it is objectively redemptive for humankind, right? What he did matters for all of us, regardless of where we stand on the topic. And so I would say that it's actually a quite inclusive understanding of what Jesus did. That whether you acknowledge that it was Jesus or not, it was through Jesus that all of this happened. And that because of that, we all have access to God and we have access to eternal life in a way that would not have been possible for us had Jesus not come and um, done what he did for us. All right, so now I'm going to move on to verses, that next section, verse 13 to 22. And I'm going to read you 16 to 20. We're going to talk a little about this. So here's what happens. So they've questioned, and Peter came back and said, gave this great speech and said that it's all through Jesus. And so the leaders kind of say, okay, will you and John step outside for a minute because we just need to discuss this. So they put them outside, and they huddle up, and they're like, okay, now uh, what will we do with them? For it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them back in. Come on back in, Peter and John. They called them in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. (laughs) But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. So basically they're saying, teftonels, you can tell us not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus, but I'm much more concerned about God than I am about you. And again, people who are living in resurrection faith can do that, right? Because they see themselves, they know themselves to be held in God's hands. And so they can do what they think God wants them to do because of that, right? Okay, so they they decide, they, they huddle up, they decide what to do, they do that. These Peter and John, who are believers, are so emboldened to work for God's purposes here and now, they see, hmm, do you think it's better to do what God wants or what you want? We're going to continue to talk about Jesus. And I want you to note that when Peter speaks, we're told that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what allowed fishermen who probably had never studied, like the religious leaders, to hold their own with them. They weren't intimidated by the religious leaders' learning. They didn't fall in line with what the expectations were for how you would um, behave and interact with people who were the religious authorities. They knew that they answered to God through Jesus. And that gave them courage and it um, allowed them to speak their truth in a way that they weren't worried about how it was going to come out. They were just letting it come, letting it fly from the gut and from the heart. You know, in a similar way to Peter and John, the ways of the world will challenge us in our discipleship. We are consistently having to ask ourselves, hmm, am I listening to God or am I listening to the people who are telling me I need to be doing it this other way? And so that that resetting ourselves on that true north of God consistently, consistently is work that we have to do over and over and over again. We don't get there once and then it's like, shoo, I'm in the lane and I'm never gonna have an issue with this again. It's like, no, we're constantly having to recalibrate and say, hey, am I still today doing what I think God is calling me to do? Or am I being swayed by powers that aren't consistent with who I think God is? And N.T. Wright in the book passage for this week wrote, where God's power is at work to bring about change and healing and life, those witnessing this power in Jesus' name can stand before authorities and powers and say with integrity they are speaking for God. This is what's happening with John and Peter, and hopefully it's what's happening with us in our lives. Okay, 23 to 31. I'm going to read 29 to 31 kind of at the end of this passage. And now, Lord, look at their threats. Okay, so let me set this up for you. So they've released John and Peter. They said, don't talk anymore about Jesus. And they said, so sorry, we're still going to do it. And what can they do? So they release them, right? And so John and Peter go back to, did I say Jesus? They go back to, um, John and Peter go back to their group. And they tell them everything that happened to them. And the first thing they do is they huddle up and they pray about all of this stuff that happened. And this is kind of at the end of their prayer. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So I want I want us to take a minute and think about everything that they could have asked for in this prayer. So they've they've been told everything that's just happened that we've talked about and they come before God and they raise up this prayer and they could have said things like, Hey, can you just, you know, knock out and eliminate these people who are standing in our way, right? If, if you would just get rid of them, our life would be a lot easier. They could have said, hey, will you just make them believe like we believe? The people who are against us, change their hearts and make them, make them think what we're thinking. They could have said, Lord, will you please stop all persecution? Keep all these people from hurting me. But what they prayed for was courage to continue to speak God's word boldly. And so I kind of wanted to use that as a jumping off to make the point that there will always be those who are going to work against the very things that we think are most important to work for. There are always going to be people who see that differently than we do. And we should give them the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe they have good reasons for thinking that, that, what, that they see things diametrically opposed to how we do. So the proper stance in all of that is not to have God clear the decks of all adversity, because there's things that we learn from having to go up against adversity that we won't learn any other way, right? So... It's not so much that all of that goes away, but that we pray to God for us to be our best selves in the midst of the challenges that we're asked to walk through so that we can honor him, we can honor who we know ourselves to be as a child of God, and that when we feel like we've gotten that wrong, we can kind of circle back around, and the next time, give it another go and try and more live into who we are as a child of God. Okay, last section, 32 to 37. I'm going to read for you uh, 32 to 35. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So get this picture of the community of Jesus, the community of believers. They're all living together in love and fellowship, and they're selling their stuff, and they're bringing it in for the good of the group, and they're sharing it. Think about the image that would give, you know, what that image would be and then compare it to the image of what's going on in the temple where people are um, bringing money in to pay those who are keeping it up and and they're um, doing sacrifices and there's kind of a whole business system that's kind of run up on that. And so no wonder that these believers over here were able to give such um, powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. They were demonstrating its realities in ways that the temple system and so by comparison other systems like that that we see around today could not, right? Those kind of systems just are not witnessing to Jesus the way that these guys are. And so the point they're making is who's the true covenant people of God? I mean, they're kind of establishing their claim, the claim of Jesus' followers, to be the true assembly of God's people, while those who run the temple are kind of far from God. And so this dichotomy of how we're doing it over at the temple and how Jesus' followers are now doing it is gonna continue to create tension between these two to where, over time, then the temple and Judaism will cut off Christians who were Jews. But now they're saying they're no longer of our house. They have strayed so far from who we are as Jews that they are no longer under our protection and under our roof. And the reason this is important is because Judaism was an established, recognized religion by the Roman Empire. And so they had protection under Roman law to exist, to worship, to do their temple as, as, as they saw fit. Um, and other religions didn't. I mean, you either worship Caesar or you were Jewish, right? And so this was this is a big deal that then at a point down the road the Jews say this sect that these Jesus followers they are no longer part of Judaism. And so they don't get the same protection under the system as we do. And that was that was a hard time for Christians and there was a lot of persecution there. And that's that's down the road, but that's where we're leading with this division that's starting to open up between Judaism and the followers of Jesus. And I want to take a little a minute and talk a little bit about uh, this, uh, the way that the, the followers of Jesus were living together and hanging out. And, I, and I, I, I actually preached on this in the spring, so if you heard that sermon, you're going to hear a little of the same stuff. So I apologize for that. But we're told that the followers of Jesus in the early church in Jerusalem were of one mind and one heart and that they held all possessions in common to be used for, among the need of the group. And so I would just posit that we're able to believe a lot of stuff that Scripture tells us. We're able to believe that Jesus worked miracles and that he was able to heal people and that there were theophanies that people saw God um, revealed to them. All of that we seem to take in pretty okay. But the church being of one mind and holding all possessions in common, (laughs) that is a bridge too far. I mean, you know, I can imagine Jesus healing people and doing miracles, but this, this I can't understand. Because, you know, Jesus is Jesus, but we're us. And it's like, no, 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 no. We wouldn't be able to do this. But the, the, you know, that's the point in Acts. The reason that we read all these stories about these early folks who heard the good news and converted and believed and, be, and their lives were changed because of it. They started living differently. That's the whole point is that This reorienting of our life, this giving all of ourselves for the needs of the community was as foreign in its day as it seems to us today. And the only explanation is that the followers of Jesus were living resurrection life through the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection made all the difference. The resurrection created a community of faith among disparate people who had never been part of such a community Their core conviction being that God had raised Jesus from the dead and in doing so had given those who believed new life. And so every gathering of the community was a witness to the resurrection. And the resurrection should make a difference in our lives. Those of us who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus, our lives should look different. Jesus saves us, not just for ourselves, but for others. So we not only proclaim the resurrection, but we embody its truth in our lives by caring for one another, by being involved in one another's lives. Christians live in the assurance that God holds us in his hands, and so we are empowered to be gracious for the sake of others. And because we've been created for this, this is who we're meant to be, when we take up our resurrection life, we find fulfillment and contentment and joy. And this resurrection life is an amazing witness to the truth and the grace and the power of God. And it is this witness that is so attractive to those who do not yet believe. And I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but I've had that happen, where people who've known me in in er arenas outside of the church and aren't even sure, don't even know that I'm a priest, don't even know that I'm a Christian, right? They ask me, you know, you seem really peaceful, and you seem really content, and that's not the way my life is, and what is that about? And that's an amazing thing for people to see in your person and in your life that you are so trusting in who's holding you ultimately that it shows to other people, right? That, and that's a great opening. It's a great door and it's very attractive. It was this witness of lives lived for one another in generosity and caring, this image of the early church followers coming together, taking care of one another. It was this image that was so attractive to those who observe the early church. The church's generosity and fellowship became a tangible sign that validated its message of Jesus. If these people are living like this, and this is the message they're saying, by golly, that message must be true. Because look at how it's um, showing up in their lives, how it's changing them, right? And so you see this amazing, some would say miraculous, growth of the early church. And so I want to close on this uh, chapter 4 today with this passage that was in the Wall Street Journal last spring right at Easter time. In an article titled The Easter Effect, George Weigel addresses this unlikely and drastic change in the lives of those who followed Jesus. He writes, There was a curious and inexplicable joy that marked the early Christians, even as they were being marched off to execution. It was the joy of people who had become convinced that they were witnesses to something inexplicable but nonetheless true, something that gave a superabundance of meaning to life and that erased their fear of death, something that had to be shared, something with which to change the world. That's it. All right, that's, oh, y'all don't have to do that. (laughs) Thank you, though. Okay, thoughts, questions, comments on any of chapter 4 or anything that y'all have covered so far? Yes, right. Their playbook, right? He's using their stuff, right? So because And how powerful is that whenever you're talking to somebody about something to be able to kind of use their knowledge and their... I don't want to say jargon, but I don't want to like, you know, say scripture is jargon. But, you know, to be able to speak their language in a way that, that, that creates commonality even before then you get to the different point that you're trying to make in the midst of that. You're exactly right. That's a really powerful thing. And again, it's not, we have no reason to believe that Peter trained for that, right? I mean, it's not like he took a course. He took Oratory 101 right after, the, right after Jesus' resurrection to kind of get this stuff down, right? This, he's being empowered to reach for this scripture that's a part of who he is um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So, yeah. I love that. That is such a great image. Pentecost happening all over again, right? And so what, what I was picking up from there is, I mean, you're picking up kind of the coming of the Holy Spirit again and again and again, right? And what I was picking up is that, man, when we feel like we need God, we go to prayer, right? So we go we go into prayer and, and a lot of us do that, right? That's our default. When things, when we hit a wall on something, we, we go to God in prayer and, and give it to him and ask him to be involved in, in healing it or fixing it or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that, this, that the fact that their automatic response was to turn to God and to be open to the Holy Spirit was what that that was their gift that was how they were faithful and that's such a great model for us right is to be open to that because sometimes God answers our prayers in ways that we weren't envisioning I mean we kind of laid it out for God we're like I've got a really good solution to this and here's what it looks like and if you could just make that happen we would all be good and I'd really appreciate that and the problem is is that God very often addresses our issues in ways that aren't the way we looked at and thought that he was going to do it. And so that kind of being open to the Holy Spirit aspect is so important because it keeps us from blindering too much, and it gives us space to see that God might be doing something. Something over here, hmm, that just might be God, and I would have never seen that if I was, this, if I was only looking this way, right? So that's where both of those, and I do believe that the Holy Spirit continues to empower us and to draw us into the understanding of where God is calling us into um, every time that we turn to him. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. They have, you know, they have the Torah on scrolls, right? So they do have that written. um, But you would generally study at the feet of, you would be an apprentice at the feet of someone. And so actually, um, I'm going to. I'm going to tear up his name, Gamaliel, or that's who Paul studied at the feet of, right? And he quotes that in some of his letters, like, hey, your credentials are no better than mine. I did this, I studied under him, I knew this, da-da-da-da, he rolls out his resume, right? So he did have that. Um, And I think, you know, and it's why we call Paul the greatest evangelist of the church, right? Because he did have all of that grounding, and he was using it in a different way, and here God comes in and calls him to use that, differently and man talk about being able to speak from their own playbook right he had all of that down and he had the history of people knowing he had worked against the church and so that's an also a very powerful thing when someone who was working at this angle is now all of a sudden living at this angle that makes you sit up and you know and take notice um and and yeah so he he had all that so it was mostly oral other than scripture was on scrolls yeah and, you know, that's where we start getting all the midrash. So midrash is the extra-canonical teaching that the rabbis had outside. So so they would read a part of scripture, and then they would kind of do a commentary. Like today we have commentaries, um, you know, like our, our friend N.T. Wright with his Acts commentary. They would, these midrash, these rabbis would do, have these commentaries that we call midrash. And it was a way of them exploring what that scripture might mean. And so that was all going on, too, that you had these um, rabbis that, that um, gained a reputation based on the fact that they were doing these different kinds of midrash. Anything else? All right, well, we needed to break early today anyway because we have the uh, St. Michael luncheon, which if you hadn't planned on attending, I want to invite all of y'all to, well, I'm going to invite all of y'all. I'm going to assume we have enough food. <laughs> They're, they're probably getting nervous with me right now. But um, we'd love for you to join us. I'll share my lunch with you if you didn't sign up and you want to come. So um, we'd love to have you. Chris will be back next week. He'll be doing chapter five. I understand it's on your bookmarks. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, so much for having me with you.